Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What then advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the more oft-repeated quotations of Mark Twain that, in fact, he actually never said is, some people are troubled by the things in the Bible that they can't understand. I'm troubled by the things that I can understand. Ever heard that supposed quotation of Mark Twain? Well, what we have in this text is a section that's really hard to understand. It's really hard to understand because of the syntax and the structure and the style of it. And then we have another section, the second section of this, which is, is impossible not to understand. Uh, and if we understand it, we will be very troubled by what we do understand, and it's abundantly clear, all too clear and too troubling. Now, these two sections are knit together by the same way they start. If you look at verse 1 and you look at verse 9, they both start with a question. What then? What then? And that marks the two sections. And uh, let me review what, where we are in Romans. So there was an introductory section in which uh, Paul introduced the, the idea of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel. But then he said the wrath of God is revealed against humans and then he said the wrath of God will be revealed against humans as well. And so for the last three weeks, including this week, we have heard Paul, the prosecuting attorney, building his case against humanity. And first of all, against humanity, and then he zeroed in on the Jews, and this chapter continues to have a focus on the Jews. 
Because as you recall, it would have been easy for the Jews to hear this denunciation of humanity and think, yeah, those Gentiles out there are terrible. Those non-Jewish people, they're awful. Go get them, Paul. And then Paul says, yeah, but not just they, but also you. And we'll hear some of that here as well. Now, what we have here is, is Paul kind of uh, qualifying a little bit because he's saying here after chapter 2, chapter 2 makes it look like Jew and Gentile are on exactly the same footing, and they are indeed on the exact same footing before God. But he says here, but am I saying that there is absolutely no advantage to being Jewish? So that's the first question he raises. And he's saying, in light of what I just said in chapter 2, that both Jew and Gentile are accountable to God and under his wrath for not obeying the law that he has given to them in different ways, either written to the Jew or internally on the heart of the Gentile. He's saying, is there no advantage to being a Jew? So that's the, the, how this, this starts. And he asks two questions that I think are basically the same question. He says, what then advantage has the Jew? And the second question is, or what is the value of circumcision? What is the value of being set apart by God, having the, the mark of God, the sacrament, if you will, of the Old Testament on, on that, that, uh, that people? Is there any advantage? And he answers in verse 2, much in every way, much in every way. And then he says, to begin with. So he says, first, but he never gets to second. So it looks like he's going to start a list. But then he, he seems to interrupt himself, and he never gets to number two. So he says, first, and he, he, he says what's first, the, the first example of their, their advantage. And then it seems like something occurs to him. And remember, he's, he's dictating this letter, and something occurs to him, and he, he goes off on something of a digression, but an important one. And then he will eventually get back to other advantages of, of being Jewish, but not till chapter 9. So you have to wait till then. So we have number one here, and then we'll get to some others when we get to chapter nine. Now, what is the first advantage? He says here, to begin with, number one, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the oracles of God. That's an unusual expression. It's not unique here. It appears other places, and it refers probably here at least to the books of Moses, but probably here refers to all of what we would call the Old Testament. Who received the written word of God? Well, the answer is easy. The, the Jews did. No other nation did. Now, they may have peeked in and, and listened in, but it was the Jews that had received the written word of God. And that's no small advantage. And actually, we've already heard about that in chapter 2. Because, yes, the Gentiles have it written on their hearts, but the Jews have always had it much more clearly. They can pick it up. They can read it. They can hear it. And that is a huge advantage. Now, before getting to item 2... It looks like these questions that follow, and, and there are a number of different ways to, to read these questions and debates among the, the scholars on these things, but I think the, the point of them will, will become clear. It looks like something occurred to him in what he said. In verse 2, he says, Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted, entrusted with the oracles of God. And then in verse 3, he says, what if some of them were untrustworthy? So uh, our translation has kind of made it look like there are two different words there, but they're, they're similar words. 
Uh, they have been entrusted with the oracles of God, but what if some of them were untrustworthy of that trust that they received? Then he asks, does their untrusting, does their lack of trust nullify the trustworthiness of God? And so it looks like he began thinking about this question of trust. They were entrusted, but were they trustworthy? And if they weren't trustworthy, does that call into question God's trustworthiness? So this is the question he's, he's asking here, and the answer is very clear. Verse 4, by no means. Absolutely not. No way. This is a very, very strong negative rejection of the idea. The fact that they weren't worthy of the trust does not reflect at all upon God's trustworthiness. And then he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So he says, let's, let's imagine the case where everyone else is a liar. That does not mean that God is a liar as well. So their untrustworthiness doesn't uh, affect God's trustworthiness. And then it's interesting, he quotes from Psalm 51, that famous psalm of confession of David. And he says here, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, who is the you here? It's God. God is being, being imagined as put on trial. God is being judged here. And he says here that even though everyone else is false, if God were put on trial, if he were judged according to his words, he would be justified. And so that is the, the, the first question and answer. Well, a couple of questions and answers. The one is, the first question is, does the Jew have any advantage? Yes, the oracles of God. Well, does the Jewish untrustworthiness affect God's trustworthiness? And the answer is absolutely not. And then after that, verses 5 to 9, can, they, they sound kind of um, silly even. And the way Paul dismisses them, I think, justifies us in seeing them as kind of silly. But they are a, something that's perhaps typical of humans, a desperate attempt to get out of God's judgment, to get away from the idea that, that God will judge me. And verse 5 asks the question one way, and verse 7 asks the question another way. And the question is this, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul seems almost embarrassed to be bringing this up because kind of in a parenthesis, he says, I'm speaking in a human way here. And he's, as if to say, I'm, I'm being sort of ridiculous here, but, he, but he's making a, a point. Then in verse 7, the, the same question is asked in a different way. But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So the, the same sort of question. It's saying, if my sin helps to magnify God's righteousness, then I'm doing God a favor by sinning. And, and how could he possibly judge me for helping him out so much? and showing off his righteousness, and showing off his glory, and showing off his truthfulness. If we're going to use kind of silly examples, we could use a childish example. Let's say a child decides that he or she is just going to tear up the house, rip it to shreds, going to color, going to paint, going to tear, going to do all sorts of damage. 
And the parent wants to discipline the child, and the child says, you can't do that. I am showing to the world how good you are, mom and dad, at cleaning things up. I am showing to the neighborhood how rich you are in being able to buy replacements for all the things that I have smashed. I am showing how good you are at fixing things that I have broken. You can't judge me. I am helping you out. And so what's the answer to that? There are two answers. Verse 6. First answer is this. Once again, the same expression, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? If you're going to argue like that, then you are basically saying God cannot judge anybody for anything. So if you're trying to wiggle out of judgment for yourself with this kind of a silly argument, realize the implication thereof. You are taking God off his throne. You are saying that he can't judge anybody for anything. So be careful. And then verse 8, he says, And why not do evil that good may come? He says this is another implication of this kind of argumentation. If you're saying you're doing God a favor by sinning to show off his glory and his righteousness, then you are promoting sin. And then Paul rather disgustedly says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. And we will find out in chapter 6 that indeed there were some saying that Paul was promoting sin by what he was preaching. And now notice how Paul dismisses this answer, uh, this, this, this supposition at the end of verse 8. He just says, their condemnation is just. He just says, people who speak like that, they deserve to be condemned. Because this argumentation is so off base, it is taking God off his throne of judgment. And it is promoting sin. Their con- if, you, if you speak like that, you think like that, you, your condemnation is just. So that's the first section. It's, it's difficult to sort through because there are all these questions. Who's asking the question? Is Paul asking the question? Is some opponent asking the question? Is Paul answering with a question? And so on. But I think that if we sort through it, that we come to the conclusion that, yes, the Jews had a great advantage. And by not being worthy, trustworthy with that advantage that they received, they showed themselves to be untrustworthy, but they did not show God to be untrustworthy. And uh, in fact, his righteousness stands even if everyone's, even if everyone's falls. Now, that's the, that's the section where it's kind of this, this conversation with this imaginary opponent. And then we come to the second section where he asks again, what then? What then? Same question. And then we have a question that's, that's difficult because it says, are we, and our translation includes in their Jews, that's an interpretation, and probably right, but it simply says, are we any better off? Um, and there's a difficulty here because that verb, any better off, it appears only once in the, whole, in the whole New Testament, whole Bible, and it's right here. So the less often a word appears, the harder it is to figure out what it means. And so you have to go outside of the Bible to figure out what this word means. And it does appear in some places outside the Bible, but it's an unusual word. And in general, it means um, to to outstrip. Um, And so the question is, are we, whoever we is, are we outstripping others? Are we outpacing others? Um, That's one way to translate it. But there's another way. 
And it's exactly the opposite. Are we being outstripped by others? And there's, if you want to know about the complicated grammar, we can talk about that later. But, but it's interesting that it's hard to decide if this is asking, are we Jews outstripping Gentiles with our advantages? Or, after what he just said about the untrustworthiness of the Jews, is he saying, are we Jews being outstripped by the Gentiles? And so those are the two ways of asking the question. And they're actually the opposite question, aren't they? Aren't they? But the good news is this, the answer answers either one of those questions. And so we don't have to, to worry about, decide on which one of those it is. He says, no, not at all. And that no, not at all answers both of the questions. And then here's why no, not at all. He says, for we have already charged. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So if the question is, do the Jews outstrip the Gentiles? We've already established that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Do the, are the Jews outstripped by the Gentiles? We've already established that Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So either question is answered here, and it comes to the same thing. What's it mean to be under sin? Under sin. It means two things, at least. To be under the condemnation that sin deserves, because we've been talking all about judgment. And it also means to be under the power of sin, to be under its dominion, its domination in our lives, being enslaved to sin. And I mentioned those two aspects because as we go on in Romans, those two aspects are going to be addressed. If there is going to be any salvation from being under sin, it will have to involve two aspects. It will have to involve getting us out from under the condemnation that sin deserves, and it will also have to involve getting us out from under the dominion, the control, the power of sin in our lives. And we will see that in the next chapters, that's exactly what we have. Out from under the condemnation, chapters 3 to 5. Out from under the domination, chapters 6 to 8. Now, then he launches into a defense, although he's already demonstrated very clearly, go back and read chapter 118 up to where we are now, and you will see that, that Paul has abundantly demonstrated that all Jews, all Gentiles are under sin, under its condemnation, under its power. But then, in a, in a rhetorical flourish here, in his conclusion here, he pulls out all the stops. And this is the part that it is impossible not to understand, or at least very difficult uh, to misunderstand. He says, all are under sin as it is written. And here he, he quotes from the Old Testament. But it is a composite quotation of at least seven different places, maybe more different places in the Old Testament, including allusions or quotations from uh, Psalms, from Proverbs, from Ecclesiastes, from Isaiah. And so this is a, a master composition here of a number of different verses that are woven together to demonstrate what? That all Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, are under sin. And, and you, can, you can hear how there is this, this repetition, this relentless repetition. So, so we cannot miss the point. None is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Any questions? Was that clear enough? That's the first section. It breaks into three sections. The first section is this hammering away that there is no one righteous. And then the second section, in case you might say, yeah, that's true about most people, but not about me, then he focuses on an organ that humans among the the terrestrial beings uniquely have, and it's the faculty of speech. And he, he in, in, in various ways, verses 13 and, and up to 15, or 14 rather, talks about the organ of speech. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So much of the way we go astray is in what we say. And then the last section talks about sins of violence. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the conclusion, and that's the explanation. There's no fear of God before their eyes, and we already knew that. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't fear him. They didn't recognize him. They did not stand in awe of him. They did not honor him. And that's how these two sections wind up. And then we have the closing arguments of the prosecuting attorney, he is about to rest his case. He says that in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is the conclusion. He, is, he rests his case here. He has been presenting the case against all of humanity, and now he invokes the law once again. And God here is the lawgiver. He's the legislator, but he is also the judicial branch. He is the judge as well. And so invoking the law given by God and by which God will judge, he says the conclusion, the verdict is that everyone is guilty before God. And the, the, the demonstration of the guilt has been so overwhelming that nobody even dares to, to utter a word in his or her own defense. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped and everyone may be held accountable to God. Now, why is that? Verse 20 explains it. We've already seen this, but, but here's the summary in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be declared right in his sight. No human being will be justified. No human being will be rightified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has shown us our sin, but the law cannot save us from our sin. And this is what the law does. It condemns us. 
because it shows us where we have fallen short. So if there's going to be any help for those who are standing before the bar of God's justice, being judged by his law, with our heads hung, with our mouths completely closed, with nothing to say in our own defense, if there's going to be any help for us, it will not come from the law itself. It must come from some other place. The guilty verdict is already obvious. What we are waiting at this point is simply for the sentencing to take place. The verdict is guilty as charged. And the only thing we're awaiting at this point in this courtroom drama is for the judge to pronounce the sentence. And we already know what the sentence will be since from the first pages of the Bible, we were told what the sentences would, sentence would be. We were told that the wages of sin is death. In the day you eat of it, dying, you will surely die. The Bible could have been a very, very short book. It could have told the story of creation. It could have stole, told the story of God giving his law to the first humans and then told the story of their disobedience to the law, their condemnation, and their death, the end. And that would, that would take only three chapters. But this is a very big book. The story has continued. How do we explain the fact that this book is so big? Why is it not merely three chapters that no one ever read? The story continued. What happened? Something had to come into the story. Some other factor had to be introduced into the story for the narrative to continue. In exactly the same way, Romans could have been a very short book. It could have logically ended at chapter 3, verse 20. Because what does it record? It records exactly what Genesis records. It records creation. It records the giving of the law to humans. It records their disobedience to the law, their condemnation. And now we're just waiting for the death sentence. But, once again, we're in chapter 3. And Romans goes to chapter 3. 16, something must have happened. And, and what must happen for the story to continue? Two things must happen. One is someone must speak for those who are hanging their heads in silence. Those who have nothing to say in their own defense. Someone must speak for them. And in addition... There must be some righteousness that satisfies God's just desires, his just decrees. And so the need is for someone to speak for the, the silent guilty sinners and provide a righteousness that they cannot provide for themselves. Now, as you probably know, that's what the rest of the story is. And 
That's what we delightfully get to turn to next week. And hear how Paul tells us that exactly what we needed is exactly what God provided. We needed someone to speak for us. We have one who speaks for us. We needed a righteousness that will satisfy God for us. And that is exactly what we have. It's interesting that John summed this up beautifully in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The New International Version says it this way. We have one who speaks to the Father in our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One who speaks for us and one who is our righteousness before God. And so the story does continue. Romans doesn't end at chapter 3, verse 20. Thanks be to God. And in preparation for what's coming, let me prepare you for two of the most beautiful, two of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. After this long court case against humanity, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, ending in chapter 3, verse 20, with a devastating conclusion, we will turn next week to read these two words. But now. But now. Let's pray. Lord, we tremble at the weightiness of the case against us and recognize with all of humanity we have nothing to say in our own defense. But we thank you that you have provided one who speaks to you, God our Father, on our behalf. And we recognize that we're included in this denunciation. No one righteous, no, not one. And we thank you that we have one who is righteous once again on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that the Bible did not end at Genesis 3. We thank you that the Bible did not end at Romans 3.20, but that went on to tell us the glorious good news. But now, there is a Savior who speaks and a Savior who is righteous for all who trust in him. And we pray in his name. Amen.